Delighted that you're here. We have a good number present. We appreciate the presence of everyone. I encourage you to get a Bible and study with us as we talk about things that have to do with our souls and serving God faithfully. Christians often feel that something is lacking in their spiritual life. They may feel that their spiritual strength has waned. Not what it used to be. It may be that they don't feel that they focus and worship like they used to. They don't study their Bibles as they should or maybe as they used to. They still study, but not like they used to or as they should. They don't pray as often as they should or as they used to. Still pray, but maybe not what they used to. They may feel that they're in a lull or a slump. Does that describe you? Do you feel like I'm kind of in a slump right now? Or maybe you say, well, I don't feel that way now, but I've felt that way before. I feel like I get in a lull or I feel like I'm in a slump and, and my, my study and my prayer and my worship is not what I haven't quit, but it's not what it used to be. That same Christian who may feel that way sometimes comes seeking for help. It may come to me as the preacher or may come to the elders as a whole and say, I need some help. Well, what's your problem? I feel like I'm in a lull. I feel like I'm in a slump. I don't study as I used to and I don't pray as I used to and I don't focus in worship like I used to. And it seems that they're expecting us to tell them something they've not heard before or something they don't already know. They want to know what's the answer to that. What, what can I do to get out of this slump? And we'll have an answer for that and we'll talk about that answer later, not right this moment. But when the answer is given, it seems as if they're disappointed at the answer. It's not what they were expecting. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. It very well may be that if you find yourself in that slump, that you have a need for spiritual revival. Let's define the word revival. The word revival means simply a restoration to life. A restoration to consciousness. A restoration to vigor or strength. An awakening. So says the dictionary.com. And so it may be that if you feel, I'm, I feel like I'm kind of in this spiritual slump right now. I, I'm certainly not ready to quit, but I feel like I'm in a law and I need a spiritual revival. What does that mean? It means that you need a restoration to spiritual life. You need some restoration to spiritual consciousness and spiritual vigor and spiritual strength. You need a spiritual awakening. Please be advised, I am not using the term in the sense of the charismatic movement. Not everybody who uses the term churches have revivals, but, and we've shot away from the use of that term in uh, those kinds of settings because of the connotation of a charismatic kind of connotation. I'm not using it in that sense at all, but what I'm talking about is a spiritual renewal, or as a term we're using in the modern day, of a spiritual reset. Do you feel like you're in that law where you need a spiritual reset? There will be times, if not now, that you will. Who is the target of this 
particular study. And I want to suggest to you that every Christian is the target. I'm not focusing on a particular person. Sometimes we may plan a study because we've got a particular person we're trying to help. Or maybe it's a group of people. Maybe it's the younger people. Or maybe it's the older people. Or maybe it's middle-aged. Or, or, or maybe it's a certain family that needs this particular study. But this is something every one of us needs. Because we all have times that we don't have red-hot faith. We would like to think that our faith is red-hot all of the time, but the truth of the matter, that's not the case. You may like to think that this describes your faith, that your faith never changes. And you may like to talk to someone and describe your faith. I'll tell you what, I have faith, I have strong faith, and it hasn't changed since the day I obeyed the gospel. I have strong faith, it never changes. I want to tell you, that doesn't picture your faith. A better picture would be, and we'd like to think, that our faith is always increasing. That my faith was here at one point, but now it's stronger and it's going even stronger in the future. But I want to tell you, in reality, your faith doesn't fit that. The picture of your faith looks more like the stock market. There's going to be up and down. There are going to be times your faith greatly increases and it's doing better. And then there are going to be times there's a slump in your faith. You remember Peter was a man of great faith. The Lord prayed for him that his faith fell not. And then the bottom fell out of his faith, didn't it? There were ups and downs with reference to his faith. And there will be with ours too. So let's talk tonight about your spiritual revival. And I want to do this in two parts. Tonight and then next Lord's Day morning, we'll look at the second part. Tonight we want to talk about the need for spiritual revival. And it may be that you're in that slump right now. And if not, you say, well, you know what, really, I don't feel like I'm in that slump. But you probably, if you'll be honest, can identify I have felt that way not long ago. Or maybe it's going to be around the corner that there's something going on in your life where you get that spiritual lull or spiritual slump. And you feel like things are waning a little bit. So tonight we're going to focus on the need. Next Lord's Day morning we're going to talk about how to have a spiritual revival. What do I do? What's the answer? What's the answer to that? And there is a simple answer to that. And we'll talk about that in our next study. So let's talk about your spiritual revival. Let's start with this. Let's talk about the standard. And I recognize the Bible is the standard, and that's what we're going to look at. But my focus is not that the Bible is our standard here, but what is the standard of what I ought to be? What is the goal of what I ought to be? In other words, let's talk about what God's people should be as far as their spiritual life is concerned, their spiritual vitality, their spirit, spiritual vigor. Let's consider, first of all, that God and spiritual things should be top priority. So when you take everything that's going on in your life, and so here's your work, and here's school, and here's family, and here's other things going on in hobbies and interests, God and spiritual things should be top priority. So let's look at some simple passages we know well. Let's look at Matthew 6 and verse 33. This is in the context of the kingdom of God relating to our relationship to God. And the point is God is first and foremost, and he talks beginning at verse 19 about the matters of materialism, about those who would lay for themselves treasures on earth. 
That in the kingdom of God, here's his point in the context of Matthew chapter 6, in the kingdom of God, spiritual things take top priority over material things. Then he focuses on worry, which is a form of materialism. Those who are worrying about their food and their clothing and their shelter. And in that context, he says at verse 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, first and foremost to be right with God. Seek your relationship with God. In other words, he's not saying, as some have interpreted the passage, you make sure since the kingdom and the church are one and the same, and that is in some passages that's true, then make sure the church is first and foremost. That's not his point. His point is your relationship with God is first and foremost. That is, you make sure that the kingdom of God, your relationship to God, is first and foremost, and then everything else materially will take care of itself. But let's go again. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 15. This is a passage in the context of being holy in all of your conduct. That is, every aspect of your life, you make sure you're holy. Now in chapter 3 and in verse 15, what he says is, Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. What does it mean to sanctify God? It means to set him apart. Now God sanctifies us. But this passage says we sanctify God. You set him apart is first and foremost above everything else. He's top priority. God and spiritual matters are top priority. That's what we should be. Here's something else about what we should be. We ought to be diligent. What is the idea of being diligent? The idea of diligence means we're giving everything we have. We put some life and some energy into what we're doing. For example, Romans chapter 12 and verse 11 says being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. In other words, any aspect of our service, we should be fervent in that. In other words, service to the Lord is not just something that I, well, I, I'm willing to do that, but I put some life and some vitality into that. Well, furthermore, I notice in Colossians 3 and in verse 23, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord. Now, by the way, that's in the context, as Micah was developing this morning from Ephesians, the parallel account in the Bible class this morning, that this is in the context of a master-slave relationship, or as we would in our current setting, this, the employee-employer uh, relationship kind of setting. And that whatever we do to our master or to our employer is how we should be treating the Lord or how we are treating the Lord. So whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord. That is, what we do in our service to God should be done heartily with some energy and some life and again, some vitality. Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 8, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. That is, put, put some life and some energy into that. God wants us to be diligent in all things. Well, I cite another passage along this line, 2 Peter 1 and verse 5, giving, notice the word here, all diligence. Add to your faith, virtue to virtue, not. This is talking about growing and developing. And you're to give all diligence to grow. You're not just growing if it happens to happen to you. And if I learn a little bit more, maybe I'll grow in knowledge. And if the occasion of, uh, uh, comes up, I might pray a little more. But you're working in that direction. That's what God wants and expects us to be. Here's a third thing God wants us to be. The standard. We're to be zealous. We're to be zealous people. Look at second, uh, second chapter of Titus in verse 14. Titus 2, 14. We ought to be zealous of good works. 
Not just that we're willing to do some good works, and we approve of good works, and we're not against good works, but we're zealous for good works. Well, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This is talking about the contribution for the poor saints of Jerusalem. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And I want you to notice in verse 2 that he says, For I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. You see, when I told others about your zeal, and they saw your zeal, and they understood your zeal, that promoted them to do more. So in other words, zeal stirs greater service. Let's define zeal now. So I know what the standard is. I need to be zealous. What does that mean? There says the word zeal means excitement of mind, fervor of spirit. Do you have that excitement of mind, or do you think that's waned in your life? The word zeal comes from a root word, zeal, which simply means to be hot or to boil as of liquid or to glow as of solids, figuratively to be fervid or earnest. You see, as you put a bowl, a, a bowl of water a pan of water on the stove, and you watch it boil, and it leaps with activity, the word that describes that is the same word that, that is the concept of zeal. If you've ever seen metal that was glowing so that you can nearly see through the metal, how hot that is, the word that describes that is the word that it's the root concept of this word zeal. It means to be hot. They were not hot all the time. But that's the goal, and that's the standard. Now, let's move to another point. I know what the standard is. I know what I ought to be, and I know I'm not always that. So now let's focus on the indifference. Now, remember I said our faith will be like the stock market. It's going to go up, and it's going to go down. It takes sharp turns up at times, and sharp turns down, and maybe minor turns down, and minor turns up. There are going to be times that we may feel like we are indifferent. How can that develop? Well, let's see what's going on here. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 3, 15 and 16. The church at Laodicea was neither cold nor hot. They were described as being lukewarm. And that's interesting. Spiritually, there's some people that are hot. Spiritually, there's some people that are cold. They've just given up and they've quit the Lord and they're gone. They're done. They're finished. Our concern here is about those that are lukewarm. That I was hot, but I haven't gone to the point of being cold, but I might be said to be lukewarm. Does that describe you? Does that describe your law? Here's another description of that, that indifference. Let's go to the second chapter. Back up a chapter now to Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. This was the church at Ephesus. And the text says it, verse 4, they have left their first love. They left their first love. What does that mean? It means their first love was left behind. You go back, and we want at this moment to Acts 19, when this group was converted, the excitement and the enthusiasm they had of burning their books in order that they might turn to the Lord. Oh, there was great excitement. Summer says it means the honeymoon is over. They were loyal but lacking. Hark writer in his work on Revelation says, in form they were still a sound church. 
which fended all false doctrine, but the fire was gone out. There is more to serving God than an adherence to a mechanical, traditional routine. Their fire was gone. Their love and their enthusiasm and their excitement had vanished. Does that describe you? Do you feel like I'm, I'm in this lull? I feel like I'm, I'm in a slump spiritually and I, I'm, I'm kind of going that downturn. I want to go back up the other direction. But at the moment, I feel like the honeymoon's over. I'm trying to be loyal, but I'm lacking. My fire is gone. I'm in a routine. I'm lukewarm. But here's another description of that indifference. In Matthew chapter 24, one of the things that would be a sign pointing toward the destruction of Jerusalem, as there would be earthquakes and famines and pestilences, etc., there would be some, because of lawlessness abounding, the love of many will wax, verse 12 says, cold. Their love ought to be hot. But now that's describing them as their love waxing cold, they're indifferent, they're apathetic, they don't care anymore. At least not as they should. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 8 to notice one more description of this before we leave the indifference. And that is, in Nehemiah chapter 8, describes a picture of a forgotten service or at least neglected service. Nehemiah chapter 8. We're about to begin Wednesday night a new study of, of, of Nehemiah. So we'll get to chapter 8 in more detail later. I just want to give a kind of a summary of what's going on in Nehemiah chapter 8. In Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra reads from the book of the law. And what they learned from the reading of the law, let's drop down to about verse 13. And on the second day, the heads of the fathers, uh, the uh, heads of the fathers' houses, all of the people with the uh, priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra in order to understand the words of the law. And what they learned. And they found written in the law, which the Lord God had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths, Concerning the feast of the seventh month. In other words, this is the feast of the tabernacle. Now, there's no evidence that they had completely quit serving in the sense they were not observing the feast of the tabernacle. But part of that was to dwell in booze in that part they had quit some time before. You see the picture? It's not that concerning when the time came around for the feast of the tabernacle, we just aren't going to do that anymore. They were still doing that, all evidence points to that. They were still observing it. There was just a part of that they had just forgotten about. You say, what do you mean they forgot it? Look again at the wording of verse 14. They seem to learn at this point, oh, you see, we're supposed to be dwelling in booze during this feast. We forgot about that. We've been neglecting that. That's a picture of indifference. That's gone on for some time, and they hadn't seemed to be thinking about that at all. I know what the goal is. The standard, I know the picture of indifference. Let's talk about the subtlety of this need for spiritual revival. What do I mean the subtlety of it? It's subtle in the sense that your need for spiritual revival is not going to be like a flashing light going off so that you take notice of it as soon as it starts. What do we mean? Well, let's start with this. Let's consider that it develops gradually and slowly. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2 and in verse 1. Hebrews 2 and in verse 1. Micah talked about this passage a little in his sermon this morning. And we want to go a little bit into that passage as well. That we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest, the text says, we drift away. 
This describes a slow, gradual process. In other words, it's possible to drift away from things we know to be right. Here's the things we've heard. We know it's right. But what can happen? We can drift away from that. The King James says, let them slip. That describes a slow, gradual process. The footnote in the King James says, the Greek means simply run out as leaking vessels. If you can imagine having a container full of liquid, but it had a great gigantic hole in the side where it's all gushing out, you would take notice of that rather quickly. But what if it had a pinhole in the side so that only a drop is coming out and then another drop a few seconds later and then another drop a few seconds later and then over time you've lost it all gradually and slowly. That's how departure comes. That's the subtlety of that. See, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not that one is diligent and enthused one Sunday and they come to church the next Sunday and they've kind of, I don't know, just don't have it anymore. Doesn't happen that way. Doesn't happen that way. That's what makes it hard to recognize in ourselves. You see, I'm, I'm not much different than I was last Sunday, and I'm not much different that Sunday than I was the Sunday before, and I'm not much different that week than I was the week before, but over time it may be gradually going down. That's the subtlety of it. It strikes first at the heart, and then manifests itself in our actions. What's the subtlety of this law? The subtlety of it may be the fact that what we're doing is not wrong. You see, Israel of old turned to idolatry. And that was easy to identify. These people were worshiping God. Now they're bowing before an idol. I, I know that's wrong. That's not hard to identify. They're idolaters now. They're bowing down before Baal. But our slump doesn't involve things like drinking, maybe. Could lead to that. But you look at yourself and you say, I'm not drinking, I'm not guilty of fornication, I'm not guilty of stealing, I'm not guilty of cursing, I'm not guilty of lying. See, those are easy to identify. Could look at yourself and say, you know, I used to not lie, but I tell lies all the time. I used to not curse, but look at the language I use. I used to not drink, and look, I get drunk even sometimes. That's easy to identify. What's hard is what we're doing may not be wrong at all. In fact, the things calling for our attention may be right within themselves. Deuteronomy 6 is a case in point. The warning was when you go into the land, you're going to have vineyards that you never planted. Nothing wrong with those vineyards. They're great. You're going to have houses you never built. Nothing wrong with those houses. They're great. Problem is, beware lest you forget your God. In the middle. What they are, what's calling for their attention is not wrong. That's the subtlety of it. Something else about the subtlety of it. It's harder to see what we're not doing. Okay, case in point, Hebrews chapter 5. In the time you ought to be teachers, you have need someone teach you. You see, overt acts of sin are easily seen. Cursing? Drunkenness, fornication, even sin and attitude can easily be seen. I'm filled with hatred, bitterness, and unforgiveness. I can identify that. But it's harder to see what I fail to do. And it's even harder to see 
that I don't care as much as I should. It's even harder to see that I'm not as involved as I ought to be. Or I'm not as dedicated as I should be. Or I haven't grown as much as I should. And I want to tell you that's especially true when my apathy has not caused me to quit altogether. See, I'm still going to church. Hadn't missed a service. But I may be in a slump. Part of the subtlety of it is seen in that. But here's another thing about the subtlety of it. It develops gradually and slowly. That's why it's kind of sometimes hard to detect. What I'm doing is not wrong within itself. The things that are calling for my attention. And it's harder to see what I'm failing to do. And I want to suggest to you also, often our focus is on the fruit of indifference as being the problem. What do we mean by that? Well, we address the symptoms sometimes, and we see little results. For example, someone doesn't attend as they should, and I'm not, and this needs to be done, but I'm not criticizing doing this. But someone doesn't attend as they should, so we go and talk to them about attendance. You know, the Bible says you need to attend. Here's the passage. And we don't see any results. And someone's not studying as they should. So we go to them and say, here's the passage that says you need to be studying. See, you read it right. It says you need to study. And we don't see any results. Why is that? We're treating the symptom and not the problem. You see, the real problem may be in the heart. Keep your heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. problem may be they're indifferent and they don't really care you see the person who's indifferent to show them the text says you need to attend that don't mean anything to them no wonder we don't see any results and the person who isn't studying they're indifferent yeah i know i need to study but i'm just not doing it i already know that you don't need to show me passages that say that we're treating the symptoms instead of the problem When we cure the problem of indifference, the rest will take care of itself. Now, I know the standard and I know the indifference and I know the subtlety now. Let's talk about the signs. What are some signs that may indicate I'm getting in this this lull? I'm going into this slump. And that my faith is taking a hit like the stock market and it's turned down for a little bit. And it may come back up and it can, but maybe it's turning down for the moment. How do I know? First of all, there may be a loss of zeal, a loss of zeal. You see, it's possible to lose the fire of enthusiasm. We've already cited Revelation chapter 2. They left their first love. That happened to Judah, I want to suggest to you. They let their service deteriorate into a wearisome routine. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah chapter 29. We're soon going to be embarking upon a study of Isaiah, and we'll see this in more detail when we do that later. Maybe that's even in our next trimester. But I want you to notice beginning at verse 9, we won't read all of this, but beginning at verse 9, here is their blind following of those who would deceive them. He said, you're blind and be blind, verse 9. But I'm interested more to get down to verse 13. And the Lord said, inasmuch as the people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips. Sound familiar? Because of your familiarity with Matthew is why you are recognizing that. And have removed their hearts from me and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. 
That's interesting. Look at that last phrase. And their fear toward me is taught by the commandments of men. The New American Standard renders that. It's a tradition learned by rote. The NET translates that. It's nothing but a man-made ritual. In other words, Judah let their service to God deteriorate to the point. It's nothing but a ritual they're going through. They've lost their zeal. Let's go to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. One of the complaints God had against them is their, the lack of reverence and the lack of honor. And where is there no lack of reverence and lack of honor? And one of the things he cited beginning at verse 8, that you offer the blind and the lame and the sick. Meaning you bring your, your blind animals and your lame animals and your sick animals and you're offering the secondary animals to me are the worst that you have. And then he rebukes them saying, you wouldn't even do that for your governor. Their worship, their service had deteriorated into a routine. You see, you're losing your zeal when you're not excited about salvation. You're losing your zeal when you're not enthused about worship of the Almighty. You're losing your zeal when you're not fired up about the hope of eternal life. And you're losing your zeal when your service to God is some kind of ho-hum, no big deal thing. Your fire indeed has gone out. Many of you have read C.S. Lewis's works. One of, them is, one of his works is the Screw Tape Letters. It's a fictional account of one devil's instructions to another of how to destroy a Christian. Screw, tapes and screw tape instructs Woodworm saying this, if you can once get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very good up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all. That's powerful. This morning in Bible class we talked about putting on the armor of God, and we take the shield of faith. What does that shield of faith suggest to you? That Satan, if he wins, has to attack your faith. And if he can just make it smaller, if he can just make it weaker, he wins. Here's another sign of this slump, and that is the loss of spiritual interest. That easily follows the loss of zeal. That might be manifested in a lack of desire for the word. You remember the babe who craves for the word, 1 Peter chapter 2. Just as a baby craves for milk and cries for the milk. Can't have enough of that. Got to have it now. The same thing is true or should be true with reference to the Christian. We crave for the word. But if you've reached the point, there's no real interest in studying and learning. Don't really care what the text means or how to apply it. When you read a text and you don't know what it means and you don't care what it means and how does it fit, how to make application, I don't care. It would be a sign of a loss of spiritual interest. Maybe you've quit studying on a regular basis. Loss of spiritual interest can manifest itself in a lack of interest or being bothered by sin. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, Proverbs 8 says. Are you bothered by sin or does the sin like 
okay, it's sin, so big deal. When you're not bothered by false doctrine, when you know somebody is being fed something false and you understand it to be false and you understand it's contrary to the will of God, are you like David who said that rivers of water run down mine eyes because they kept not thy law? Or you're not bothered by that? Or maybe we're not even concerned about the loss. I know my labor is lost. I know my children are lost. I know my parents are lost. I know, et cetera, et cetera. But I really don't seem to care. Let me suggest to you another sign is missing services. Often by the time someone starts missing services, something has developed long before. That's not the beginning. But missing services usually starts occasionally, and it bothers us at first. I had to miss. Maybe it was justified. Maybe it wasn't. But it bothered me that I had to miss. And I miss again, and it bothers me. But the more I do it, I get adjusted to that, and it becomes easier. And every time, though, we're missing, we're missing out on spiritual growth, even if it's justified. Even if I, could, I, could, I know 100% God's going to accept my excuse, I'm missing out on occasion for spiritual growth. Thomas did. Do you remember the occasion when the disciples came together and they saw evidence of the resurrection and Thomas wasn't there? And he didn't have the faith they had that they gained on that. He missed out on that because he missed one service. He missed one gathering. Let me ask you, do you miss for reasons that are within your control? You say, I could, I, could, I, could, I could have been there, but I could have controlled that, but I didn't because, well, I just made other choices. Here's another sign. Consumed with secular interest. You see, this life is merely a land we're passing through. The Hebrew writer talks about here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. In other words, this is temporary. We're pilgrims passing through. What that means is, if that's true, and it is, that this is temporary. And it means then that secular matters rank below spirit. Uh, this uh, secular matters uh, should rank below the spiritual matters. In other words, secular things are important, but they're far below the spiritual things. And I'm here to tell you that when secular things overshadow and crowd out the spiritual, you need a spiritual revival. We all need a spiritual revival. Now, here's the last thing we want to talk about. And that is the cause. In other words, not the cause for the revival, but what's the cause for the need for that? What's the cause for this lump? I know the standard of what we're shooting for. And I know sometimes we become indifferent. And I know the subtlety and I know the signs that indicate that's going on. What's contributing to that? What causes that? You say, I feel like I'm in a slump. What, what made that happen to me? Or you say, I'm not in that slump right now. And what can I do to keep that from happening? What, what will cause it if it happens to me? There's one thing, the lack of the fear of God. The lack of the fear of God. Here's what fear involves. Fearing God means that I'm afraid of displeasing God. I tremble at his word, Psalm 119, 120. I'm afraid of displeasing him. That's what fear of God means. But that's just one side of that coin. On the other side of that coin of fear, it means awe and respect. Jonah described himself as one who fears God who made the sea and the dry land, he said. He's focusing on the awesome power of God. 
So if I truly fear God, I stand in awe of God and I'm afraid of displeasing God. Now let's go to the book of Deuteronomy. Why Deuteronomy? Because there is no book in the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation that says more about fear of God than the book of Deuteronomy. So let's go to Deuteronomy 6. And I recognize we're not living under the Old Testament law. I got that. But we are living under a concept of fear and this defines fear for me. Look at Deuteronomy 6 and verse 2. Fear means I'm going to do what God says. Now notice at verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God. All right, what does that mean, Moses? To keep all his statutes and his commandments which I commanded you. You fear God, you're going to do whatever he says. Same thing is seen in chapter 13 and in verse 4. But here's something else the fear of God does. The fear of God means I do what he says, but it means I'll be dedicated and devoted. Look at chapter 10 of the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 10 and in verse 12. What does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and walk in all of his ways and to love him and serve him with all your heart and all your soul? Put everything you have into the service. That's dedication. That's devotion. Fear causes that. Look at verse 20. Same text. You shall fear the Lord and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. You hold on for dear life. That's dedication. That's Devotion. Same thing is seen in chapter 31 in verse 12. Now, Nehemiah chapter 7 talks about Hananiah, who feared God more than many. That tells me fear comes in different levels. And you say, I fear God. Okay, great. But there are some who fear more than others. Is that you? Or has your fear waned down here? Because fear causes me to be obedient. If I'm not being obedient to the word, then my fear is lacking. Either I don't have enough awe for God, or I'm not afraid enough of God. Here's something else. We focus on the present world. I want to tell you, that's not. Or that's something that's hard not to do. Because we have to focus on the present world. To some degree. You see, we get wrapped up in this life to the point that spiritual things are pushed aside. Does that describe you? Do you ever feel like I, I'm, I'm, in this, I'm in this rat race? I, I've just got so much going and I've, I've got to focus on things about the house. I've got to focus on things about uh, things that are broken. The appliances, the car. About things we need to buy, things we, bills we need to pay. There's everything in this life, even our help, and things that we're seeing too, we're focused on this life to the point that it kind of pushes aside spiritual things. If I were to ask, everyone who ever fits that bill, let's stand up. You'd all have to stand up with me. I don't need to stand up here by myself. Because it fits all of us, doesn't it? At times. You see, what happens, Matthew 13, verse 22, the parable of the sower talks about how the cares of the world choke out the word. Those cares of the world are not things wrong within themselves. They're things that are good and right, but they choke out the word because there's too much of it sometimes. Demas, we've talked about numerous times, loved the present world. No indication that was immorality. He's wrapped up in this life. Deuteronomy chapter 6, Proverbs 30 make the same point, and that is when we are materially blessed, it's easy to let spiritual things slide. You see, when, bottom, when you hit the bottom and you have not a dime to your name, 
And you don't have a bill to pay because you have nothing to pay for. And you're rock bottom. I mean, you, you just don't have anything. You have nothing but God and you turn to God. When things are going well, we forget about God. That was the warning of Deuteronomy chapter 10. It's easy to crowd our schedules to the point with things that are good within themselves. We have little or no time for spiritual matters. Let's talk about one more cause in the lesson is yours, and that's neglect. I want us to focus on this for a moment, this word neglect. And let's start with Titus, or not Titus, but Hebrews chapter 2 and in verse 3. That if we don't give the more earnest heed, we will neglect. Now I want you to go back and read that verse with me. We, we, we approached this verse a little bit earlier from the vantage point of if in it, lest we slip away, let, let them drift. To focus on the, the gradual departure. Let's go back to the beginning of the verse now. Look at verse, verse 1 now. Therefore we ought to give them more earnest heed to the things that we've heard, lest we drift away. Here's the point. If we don't give them more earnest heed, then we will neglect. We're going to let it drift. Now notice at verse 2, or verse 3, how should we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Do you see the connection from verse 1 to verse 3? If you don't give them more in his teeth, then it's easy to let things drift, and he describes that at verse 3 as neglecting our salvation. Now let's talk about that neglect. BDAG, a lexicographer, says that means to be unconcerned. Does it mean you've completely renounced it? I don't, want, I don't want salvation. I don't have anything to do with it. I don't want to believe in Christ anymore. I'm getting rid of it all. That's not it. It's not real concerned. Just not real concerned. That same word translated neglect, verse 3, and unconcerned, as Bidag, is translated made light of in Matthew 22, 5. In other words, something is less important than something else. You, you kind of make light of that. That's not all that big of a deal. You ridicule it. And here's the idea of that, and that is, it may be that I'm just not as concerned about spiritual matters. I'm neglecting it. Look at 1 Timothy 4.14. It's easy to neglect our responsibilities. Let's look at this word neglect in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Something in 1 Timothy 4 that is talking about spiritual gifts, I'm convinced that it's probably talking about an appointment to a work. And let's see what verse 14 says. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which is given by prosperity, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery or the eldership. Neglect not the gift that is in you. Is that talking about, well, there's no evidence that, uh, that the presbytery could impart spiritual gifts, number one. Number two, that phrase, laying on of hands, is used in Acts 13 and perhaps other places to have reference to an appointment to a task or work. They laid the hands on those that were sent forth to preach. And it seems that he's talking about that Ty, uh, Timothy had been appointed to a task or a work, be it preaching the gospel or some other task. You've been appointed to this task. Do not neglect the task. Here's all I'm wanting you to see. We could easily neglect our responsibilities. Now, let's illustrate neglect. 
Do you remember in Acts 6 that the widows were neglected in the daily distribution? They were neglected. Now let's, let's focus on this as an illustration of the concept of neglect. There is no indication that was deliberate or intentional where someone looks at it and says, you know what, these Hellenist widows over here, let's make sure they're left out. Let's make sure when we give the funds out and the food out, they don't get any. No indication that it was deliberate or intentional. BDAC says it means to overlook or leave unnoticed. Are there things in your spiritual life that you're leaving unnoticed? You overlook it. If so, that's what contributes to your slump. That's the same sense in which we forget about God. Beware lest you forget your God. How do you forget God? You don't forget God when somebody comes to you and says, you remember the, the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt? Let me think. I, did, was that God did that? What, what is God? You hadn't forgot him in that sense. You just neglected him. You've overlooked him. You have given him very little notice. You've left him unnoticed because of focusing on something else. Now, what is it that we often neglect? I'm not going to give an exhaustive list. We don't have time for that. But I want to list two or three things that we often neglect. Number one is prayer. Say, so, well, I'm still praying. Okay. Probably every person in here can say, I pray. And I've prayed. And I've prayed recently. But are we praying without ceasing? 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Something we often neglect is study of the word. Paul said, I commend you to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. See, that makes you stronger. That gets you out of the slump. Listen to me carefully as I say this. Every person that I've ever talked to who has completely given up on their faith or gone into some overt act of sin like maybe having an affair or committing adultery or turn from their God completely somehow. That if I ask them two questions, let me, let me ask you, but for, for several months prior to this event taking place, you giving up on the Lord or quitting or doing whatever, were you praying like you should have? And the answer always is no. Okay, I've got a second question for you. Several months before this event took place or you gave up on the Lord, were you studying like you used to? And the answer always is no. One of the things that may be neglected is our focus during worship. Micah talked about that this morning. Same passage, John 4, 24. But like Israel of old, who had turned it into just a routine, a ritual, we can make it such ourselves so that we come to services and I sit through the singing and my mind's a wandering and uh, I don't even know what's going on hardly because I, I don't even remember the songs because I don't know the words of the song. I mean, I'm not paying attention to the words of the songs. I don't know what we prayed about. I don't know what the sermon's about because my mind is in all directions and I'm not focusing Can you see the value if someone says, you know what, I think I've been in a slump. If they just start praying more and studying more and focusing more, 
how far that would go. That gives you a hint in our study next week. Don't be surprised if the answers are simple. Don't be surprised if the answers are simple. But what have we seen tonight? Well, your spiritual revival, we need one. Every one of us at some point needs a spiritual revival. There's the standard that we're shooting for, the indifference that often occurs, the subtlety. We don't even take notice it's going on, and then the signs, it indicates it may be happening to me. And here's the cause, or causes, of what may be going on in our spiritual slump. Next Lord's Day morning, we'll talk about how do I get out of that slump? What do I do? How do I deal with that? How do I have a spiritual revival? That'll be our study next Lord's Day morning. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?